This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. We have three big stories for you tonight. Coming up later, we take a deep dive into what's led South Africa to take Israel to the International Court of Justice. We look at the long-term relationships between those two countries. And then we look at why the people who covered up the postmaster scandal. It's the cover-up, um, I think, that's most shocking. Why I think some of them, at least, should go to jail. Stay tuned for all of that. I'll be joined later by Dahlia Gabriel. Let's get going. Israel's war against Palestinians in Gaza rages on, and yet in Britain, rather than condemn Israel's atrocities, the government is pushing through a bill to protect Israel from the consequences of oppressing Palestinians. The Economic Activity of Public Bodies Bill, also called the Anti-BDS Bill, is back in Parliament today for its third reading. Introduced by the Tories, it would stop local councils and other public bodies from refusing to procure goods from Israeli suppliers or from divesting in Israeli firms. Lib Dem Leila Moran is the only British-Palestinian member of Parliament. Speaking to Politics Home, she called the Tories' bill, quote, purposefully divisive. That's given the context of the war, and she said the Lib Dems would vote against it. The Labour Party has also pledged to vote against the bill, writing for Labour list. Labour's Wayne David said the party opposed BDS actions against Israel, but nonetheless, he called the bill, quote, badly drafted and riddled with problems and contradictions. He said more fundamentally, it, quote, treats the occupied Palestinian territories as though they were in effect the same as the state of Israel. So this is classic Labour, really. Now, we don't really oppose the bill, but we think it's badly drafted. You know, but at least they are voting against it, as other Lib Dems. Of course, it doesn't always seem like it, with Westminster always in chaos, but the Tories do have a pretty healthy majority. Um, so it is very likely this bill will pass and then go on to the Lords. To discuss the bill, I couldn't have a better guest. I'm joined by Omar Barghouti, a co-founder of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on this important day when it comes to, to British politics and the BDS movement. Um, can I get your initial reaction um, to the bill being voted on in Parliament this evening? At a time when Israel is on trial at the International Court of Justice in The Hague for genocide, no less, against 2.3 million Palestinians in the occupied and besieged Gaza Strip, the British government, which is totally complicit, which is a partner in crime, supporting Israel's genocide, enabling it, arming it, defending it uh, against uh, accountability in international law, sees it fit to try to suppress the, the most effective, nonviolent form of solidarity with our struggle for freedom, justice and equality. It doesn't get more Kafkaesque than this. It is really, really grotesque. I mean, what our government should be doing is backing up South Africa at the International Court of Justice and, um, you know, getting a, an order for Israel for Israel to stop sort of carrying out their genocidal actions. But instead, what they're doing is banning people from trying to peacefully um, hold Israel to account. Um, I, I want to go into, a, you know, the weeds here to some degree. So how much would this legislation impact the effectiveness of, of BDS? So as far as I understand, it only affects public bodies, um, so local councils and the like. I mean, how important would this be um, to the BDS movement if it ultimately um, comes into law? It is important, but of course, it wouldn't ban 
the BDS movement writ large. As you rightly said, it would affect public bodies, not just city councils, but also universities, uh, any public institutions. They cannot invest, divest, procure in an ethical manner, basically, based on international law, uh, UN guiding principles of business and human rights, and so on, based on the European Convention of Human Rights, which the UK is is party to. Uh, many people in the UK forget that post-Brexit, but the UK is still bound to the European Convention on Human Rights, which considers even BDS writ large a, a perfectly legitimate free speech. But it wouldn't, such a draconian, anti-Palestinian, repressive and very pernicious uh, a bill in, in the British Parliament would not prevent boycotts uh, in all spheres, academic, cultural boycotts, even economic boycotts by individuals against uh, uh, um, companies. Um, it, it cannot prevent 90% of what the BDS movement does. But that 10% that we would lose is still very important. And it's not just important to us. It as this large coalition in the UK led by the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, including trade unions, human rights groups, uh, social justice movements, Black Lives Matter, climate justice groups, and so on and so forth. This very broad coalition of some 70 uh, civil society organizations uh, opposing the anti-BDS bill shows that they understand fully that this government, this repressive, anti-democratic government, will not stop at suppressing support for Palestinian rights. If they succeed with this, with this anti-democratic bill, who knows whom they will go after next. As in the first iteration of McCarthyism in the US, which supposedly went after the communists, they never stopped. They went after every dissenting voice against US imperial policy at the time. Similarly, this uh, uh, right-wing uh, authoritarian government, I, I should say, is trying to repress not just BDS, not just advocacy of Palestinian rights, but civic rights uh, uh, um, broadly. It can go after trade unions. It can go after climate justice movement. Uh, indeed, those using boycotts and divestments in their struggles uh, are so many. So many groups use those uh, tactics that are perfectly legitimate and they're nonviolent. This rule could apply to any country, but it singles out Israel as, as a country which can never be boycotted. So in other circumstances, um, government ministers can sort of overrule it and say, no, in this case, actually, you can boycott, you know, say Russia or, or China. I'm just sort of pulling these out of the, the air. Um, but these would be the ones that, you know, there'd be likely um, permission from the government to do it because they are, you know, to some degree adversaries of the UK. But it's written into law um, that you can't boycott Israel, whatever, you know, ministers can't override that. Um I said you're a great guest for this show for for this day because you are a co-founder of BDS. Now, I know most of our audience will be familiar um, with BDS, with the principles, what it's aiming for, but I wondered if I could sort of take this opportunity to ask you to sort of spell them out. Boycott, divest, sanction. What is the idea behind the campaign? Where did it come from? Um, to what degree do you think it has had success in holding Israel to account? Sure. BDS was launched in 2005 by a very broad coalition of Palestinian society inside historic Palestine, as well as in exile. Uh, it uh, calls for boycotts, divestment, and sanctions inspired by the South African anti-apartheid movement, the US civil rights movement, among others. 
Uh, and it calls for such measures to be applied in all fields, academic, cultural, sports, uh, um, economic, financial, military, embargoes, uh, and so on. It is inspired by, by those international uh, boycott and divestment movements, but it is very much rooted in a very long heritage of Palestinian popular resistance against British colonialism in the beginning and then Zionist settler colonialism uh, afterwards. Um, as a movement that is anchored in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, BDS totally rejects categorically all forms of discrimination and racism, including anti-black racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, sexism, uh, anti-LGBTQI plus uh, discrimination, and so on and so forth. So it's an intersectional movement that is morally consistent. Now, since it was launched in 2005 until now, BDS has established uh, large networks with trade unions, farmers unions, women's groups, uh, uh, student groups, academics, artists, and so on across the world, uh, representing tens of millions of people. The Israeli uh, uh, regime of settler colonialism and apartheid, uh, beginning in 2014, started to view BDS as a, quote, strategic threat, later elevating it to a strategic threat of the first order because they saw the impact BDS was having, not just in exposing Israel as a regime of oppression, but also having real impact on artists, on academics, and the beginning of impact on companies, on pension funds pulling out from companies involved in the occupation and settlements, on major corporations being forced to their knees, really. We forced them to abandon the apartheid economy, to abandon their illegal projects with Israel, such as G4S, Puma, just announced a few weeks ago that it's abandoning the Israeli market this year, and so on and so forth. There are so many companies that BDS has succeeded against. So the impact is not just symbolic, it's not just moral, it's also having a very serious real-life impact in ending the complicity, which is the key point in, in BDS. So BDS does not ask people for charity. Uh, we ask for solidarity, but uh, before uh, uh, charity and solidarity, we demand accountability for Israel's uh, crimes, and we demand ending complicity. In other words, we're asking people around the world, if you can't do any better, if you can't stand in solidarity with us, at least do no harm to us. When your pension fund is invested in companies demolishing our homes or killing our people in Gaza, you're doing harm. You have to stop that. So if a city council, let's say Leicester or York or, or any city council, uh, um, decides to divest from a company that's involved, involved in very serious war crimes, the British government uh, would stop it from doing that. Just imagine. So it's forcing the city council, which is accountable to its constituency, to procure from or invest in companies that are committing grave misconduct, grave violations of human rights. You mentioned some companies there. I've also got people in the comments saying, give us a list. So I'm going to get up um, currently sort of the graphic that's on the BDS website in terms of organizations. Um, so you've got Consumer Boycott, Targets, um, which is AXA Insurance, Puma, Carrefour, HP, Chevron, um, Texaco, Siemens, SodaStream. And we've also got Pressure Targets. I'll ask you what those are. Um, Google, Amazon, Disney, um, Divestment and Exclusion, Targets, JCB, Cat. Barclay and organic boycott targets, which is food. So McDonald's, Papa John's, Burger King. 
Could you talk us through sort of how you go about choosing what companies to to boycott? And I suppose also, you know, what's the difference between consumer boycott targets and and pressure targets when it comes to this list? So BDS is about uh, having strategic impact. It is a balance between ethical principles and strategic effectiveness. That's that's very important because it's about building people power to affect policy change. So we don't target those long lists of every complicit company on earth because it's endless and it's ineffective to go after them all. You're, you spread yourself too thin and you don't have an impact on any of them. We go after the worst, the most complicit companies, uh, uh, particularly those involved in not just uh, um, violating Palestinian rights, but also violating other communities' rights to connect the struggles. And those companies that we can win against, that we can really achieve our rights uh, by, by winning against them. So those are the targets that we call for a boycott against. Basically, that's the first uh, uh, box in, in that uh, graphic. Pressure campaigns are companies that are either too monopolistic or too widespread to expect a big success against them if we call for a full boycott. So let's uh, let's take uh, uh, Amazon. It's a very difficult company to boycott in some places. In many other places, it is possible to boycott. So our basic rule, boycott when you can. Boycott when there's a reasonable alternative uh, to Amazon, to Google. Uh, you know, certain city councils don't have to contract Google for certain cloud projects. They can contract other companies that are less evil than Google. I mean, they might still be evil, but everything is relative. Uh, um, so those pressure targets are, are companies, Airbnb, Booking.com, uh, Expedia. Some people consider Airbnb too important to boycott. We cannot, you know, we, when we travel, we, it's the cheapest way to stay. But in fact, there are many other alternatives. And some cities like Barcelona, Amsterdam and others are taking action against Airbnb and, and companies of that sort. So it's, it's important to remember that boycott when you can. It's, it's not a dogma. Uh, when you can do it, when it doesn't harm you to do it, please do it. Boycott those companies. Divestment and exclusion, basically, it's a much larger list because when we work with church pension funds, sovereign funds like the Norwegian pension fund or the Luxembourg fund or the Dutch funds or uh, and so on, we ask them exclude certain categories. So they exclude, let's say, investment in fossil fuels. We ask them exclude companies involved in grave human rights violations. Those should include settlements, should include, of course, companies that are currently arming Israel's genocide in Gaza, and so on and so forth, weapons companies, that is, uh, and so on and so forth, Caterpillar, uh, 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 and, and many, many others. Um, so that's what we try to uh, uh, to break it down to, to make it easier for anyone to join. If you're just uh, a person who's not connected well to many organizations, well, connect to organizations because BDS is about collective effort. It's most effective when it's collective. To make this very practical, so maybe take one of these companies because I'm still not sure. Is it are they a subject for boycotts if they operate in Israel? I mean, is Airbnb a problem because they operate in Israel, or are there some? Investors who are Israeli. I mean, how 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 are these decisions being being made? Sure, uh, we have four criteria for deciding on a target. The first is level of complicity. So while many many companies are complicit, we choose the worst, the most complicit. Complicity means involving uh, the companies involved in serious violations of international law. We don't just boycott a company just simply because it's operating in a, in a geography, but because it's involved in serious violations of international law. 
Airbnb has uh, uh, postings in settlements, Israeli right. settlements in the occupied Palestinian territory. That is supporting war crimes. Settlements, according to international law, the Fourth Geneva Convention, are considered a war crime. So Airbnb, Expedia, uh, uh, Booking.com are involved in war crimes. They're supporting war crimes, no less. So if people can boycott them, by all means, please do boycott them because they're, they're doing something really horrible. Uh, um, so that's the first one, complicity. Second is uh, uh, connection with other struggles. So if a company is, is involved in violating the rights of black people, of women, of queer people, of uh, it has child labor, you know, other violations, then we connect the struggle for Palestinian rights with those struggles. And what kind Third, of organization would that be? Would we, what would so we be talking example, about there? G4S, for example, which we succeeded against last year, we really pushed G4S to abandon the Israeli market after massive pressure and, and loss of reputation. G4S, as a security company, it's a British security company, so I mean, it's an easy target. What's not to hate? Uh, uh, it's involved in so many violations, private prisons, incarceration uh, against migrants in the US. I mean, it's a really, really horrible company, and it was involved initially in Israeli prisons, checkpoints, military checkpoints in the occupied territory, uh, in, in training Israeli police. Then it sold most of its business after the initial wave of BDS campaign impact. And then finally, we pushed it to abandon its final project, which is training Israeli police uh, in occupied Jerusalem. So uh, um, G4S is a perfect example. But again, let's remember, it has to be winnable. We have to be able to achieve. So Intel, for example, is deeply complicit but we're still trying to find a way to impact Intel. If we now call for a mass boycott of Intel, not everyone will be able to do that because it's in, in phones and laptops. When you go to buy a laptop or a phone, you won't check, oh, it has an Intel chip, I won't buy it. It's very difficult for consumers to do that. So we're trying to find reasonable ways, practical ways for people to support the boycott because not everyone is dedicated 100% to BDS and to Palestine. You know, you're involved in so many other struggles. We're trying to make it as reasonable, practical, and ethical as possible. And let's talk about um, very current events. Now, obviously, BDS has been around for a long time. I think of it very much as sort of, you know, a campaign against Israeli apartheid. And I suppose I say that because of the South Africa example and because, you know, BDS is, you think of it as sort of a slow building campaign. And then sort of, it seems very appropriate for when you've got this sort of constant form of oppression. How does sort of BDS fit in when what we're seeing is is sort of an explosion of violence, when what we're seeing is a possible genocide. Do you see what I'm saying? There might be this tension between sort of the paces of, of, of the different movements of a BDS campaign and then sort of a, you know, a, a military bombing campaign. Indeed. Uh, even though we've been involved in, in activism for a long time, I've personally been involved in, in human rights activism for four decades, yet nothing has prepared me to face a genocide. I've never had to deal with a genocide against my people, live-streamed genocide with utter impunity and, 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 and criminality and, and, and depravity. Uh, so we've had to up the ante in our activism indeed. We cannot build at the same pace. Yes, BDS is about movement building, building people power to affect policy change, but in moments of carnage, in moments of genocide, 
everything has to be accelerated because every 10 minutes a Palestinian child is murdered. Every hour, so many Palestinians in Gaza are dying of starvation, disease, or bombing by, 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 uh, by Israel with US, UK, German weapons, basically, and French and Italian and others. Uh, so we have to move faster. And indeed, part, part of BDS is not just about consumer boycotts and about pension funds and so on. Part of what we do is leveraging grassroots power to affect policy change. So this is the part that had to go much faster. So we started shaming governments that are complicit, like the UK government, great example of complicity in crime, shaming the UK government for its complicity, all our partners started pushing very hard. So if you look at what PSC, our, our biggest partner in the UK has done, those mass demonstrations, big coalitions, but led by PSC, up to 800,000 in, in the biggest demonstration, that does affect policy faster. Not fast enough, but faster. Uh, um, at city council level, We've managed to see several city councils across Europe, in Brazil, in, in South Africa and elsewhere, take very courageous decisions. Just yesterday, Derry, in the north of Ireland, uh, the, I, I was there presenting on BDS, the city council of Derry voted 10 to 1 to adopt ethical procurement guidelines that would exclude companies involved in, in grave misconduct and human rights violations anywhere in the world. So indeed, your question is, is very important. How do you face a genocide with such tools of nonviolent power build, uh, grassroots power building to affect policy change? It's a challenge. We're doing much more and much faster, much more intensely than before. And we're seeing some impact. Not all impact appears at once. Uh, it's about planting seeds. Uh, you cannot force a tree to grow out of a seed. It has to take its due course. In, in conditions of, of mass carnage, like we're seeing in, in Gaza now, Israel's genocide in Gaza, uh, uh, those seeds tend to grow much faster than before. And indeed, we're seeing that uh, happening in, in, in many countries. Once we succeed to stop this genocide, things will never be the same again. Israel will be treated by most of humanity as the world's pariah. And mark my words, it will be the new South Africa of the 80s, the world's pariah. It will become so much more difficult for supposed liberals to say, well, it's different, it's not different. Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa once said, the West has put Israel on a pedestal above international law and above everyone else. BDS is taking it down from that pedestal so that it's treated like every other state that is committing horrific violence, horrific war crimes and crimes against humanity. Next story. South Africa's case against Israel for committing genocidal acts in Gaza will be heard in the International Court of Justice from Thursday. If the court rules in South Africa's favour, they'll order Israel to cease its hostilities against the Palestinian territories. But South Africa isn't just taking on Israel in the court. Plenty of countries in the West, not least of all the United States, have a vested interest in the outcome of the case. Having supplied Israel with massive funds and many of the weapons being used against Palestinians in Gaza, if the court rules against Israel, the US and others will be implicated in supporting genocide. And that means in filing this case, South Africa is taking on massive global powers. This is a big deal, a really big deal. So why are they doing it? Well, 
It's because South Africa knows better than most about the nature of the apartheid practiced in Israel. In a recent episode of my podcast, Crash Course, I interviewed former South African ANC MP, so a colleague of Mandela, Andrew Feinstein. These were some connections he drew between Israel Today and apartheid South Africa. It shocked me the first time I was in the occupied territories that there are separate roads for Palestinians to use and for Israelis to use. There are separate number plates, so cars are easily identified. Now, South African apartheid was never quite as efficient as that. I do think that that sort of separateness, though, also had a similar social and cultural manifestation. You know, for instance, um, I was on a trip with South African human rights activists to Israel and then the occupied territories. I was in Tel Aviv. And one evening I was just walking along the beach and I started speaking to a group of young Israelis. And it was as though Palestine and Palestinians didn't exist. You know, someone looked shocked when I asked what contact they have with Palestinians. And they said, I don't have contact with Palestinians. And when you make the connection between Israeli apartheid and South African apartheid, often the response you get is, how offensive, how dare you compare Israel to South Africa. Actually, lots of people you speak to with knowledge of both say Israeli apartheid is even worse. Right? That's not to diminish the horror of South African apartheid. But if you think of the, the bombing raining down on the Palestinians in Gaza, if you think about sort of the systematic, as Andrew Feinstein was talking about there, different roads for Israeli citizens and Palestinians in the West Bank. He's saying this is more efficient than South African apartheid. There are many reasons to think that Israeli apartheid is even worse, right? But the link between apartheid South Africa and apartheid Israel goes much deeper um, than historical analogies. Leading black South Africans have always seen their struggle for freedom and self-determination as the same as that of the Palestinians after Nelson Mandela was released from prison in 1990. But before he was elected president in 1994, he appeared on a US town hall broadcast. This is what he said about the Palestinian struggle. As far as Yasser Arafat is concerned, I explained to Mr. Sidney that we identify with the PLO because just like ourselves, they are fighting for the right of self-determination. We have many Jews, uh, members of the Jewish community in our struggle, and they have occupied very top positions. But that does not mean to say that uh, the enemies of Israel are our enemies. We refuse to take that position. You can call it being political or uh, a moral question, but uh, for anybody, which changes his principles depending on whom he is dealing. That is not a man who can lead a nation. So Nelson Mandela there mentioning that many leading figures in the ASC were, were Jewish. Obviously, I, I forgot to mention that Andrew Feinstein is himself um, Jewish. Lots of um, people were part of, of that movement, um, South African Jews, against um, apartheid. Um, it wasn't just that the ANC's struggle was aligned with the same struggle in Palestine, though. Black South Africans and Palestinians also had a common enemy, right? And that's because Israel supported South Africa's apartheid regime economically, politically, and militarily. 
Both apartheid South Africa and Israel came into existence in the same year, 1948. That's when the Afrikaner Nationalist Party gained control of South Africa and when Palestine was partitioned. Initially, Israel was critical of South Africa, taking part in international boycotts and sanctions. But that changed following the 1973 Yom Kippur War fought between Israel and a coalition of Arab nations. In its wake, almost all of Free Africa broke diplomatic ties with Tel Aviv. At the same time, white South Africans began to identify with Israel, finding common ground with a largely white colonial enclave, fighting off the displaced original inhabitants. In 1971, South African Prime Minister John Vorster, who oversaw the trial and imprisonment of Mandela, said this about Israel. We view Israel's position and problems with understanding and sympathy. Like us, they have to deal with terrorist infiltration across the border. And like us, they have enemies bent on their destruction. Vorster had been interred as a Nazi sympathizer during the Second World War, but when he visited Israel in 1976, he was warmly welcomed. Vorster was invited to lay a wreath at the Yad Vashem Memorial in Jerusalem. Now that commemorates the six million Jews murdered by the Third Reich, a movement Vorster once supported. And Vorster went on to hold meetings with Israel's Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Defence Minister Shimon Peres. Peres would later become the country's Prime Minister. At a state dinner, Rabin toasted, quote, the ideals shared by Israel and South Africa, the hopes for justice and peaceful coexistence. Throughout the 1970s, Israel abstained on UN resolutions against South African apartheid. And in 1975, Israel even offered to sell South Africa nuclear weapons. The Guardian reported this about a memo marked confidential and only uncovered in 2010. The top secret minutes of the meeting recorded that, quote, Minister Boffer expressed interest in a limited number of units of chalet, subject to the correct payload being available. The document then records, Minister Perez said the correct payload was available in three sizes. Minister Boffer expressed his appreciation and said that he would ask for advice. The three sizes are believed to refer to the conventional chemical and nuclear weapons. The use of a euphemism, the correct payload, reflects Israeli sensitivity over the nuclear issue and would not have been used had it been referring to conventional weapons. Chalet was a codename for Israel's Jericho missiles. They're capable of delivering a nuclear warhead. Israel denies the authenticity of the document. But it would fit a pattern. Um, and it's been confirmed that South Africa sold large quantities of uranium to Israel for its own nuclear program, a program that Israel has, of course, always denied having, even though everyone knows they have it. And in pursuing these close links, Israel was out of step with the rest of the international community. In 1977, the United Nations imposed a mandatory arms embargo against South Africa. Israel ignored it and secretly continued to sell arms to South Africa with the South African government's official yearbook containing this quote in 1978. Israel and South Africa have one thing above all else in common. They are both situated in a predominantly hostile world inhabited by dark people. So the, the racism there, not hidden. By 1981, South Africa's military had over 200 Israeli advisors. South Africa's government instituted a state of emergency throughout the 1980s as ANC and other resistance forces gathered strength and Israel's military support only grew. A 2013 Haaretz article reported this... Israel shared with South Africa its technologically advanced systems, 
Senior officials in the Defence Ministry and Israel Defence Forces had excellent ties with their South African counterparts, led by Defence Minister Magnus Milan, Military Chief of Staff Constant Vigion, and Head of the South African State Defence Industry. The largest deal was reportedly signed in the summer of 1988. Israel sold South Africa 60 Kafir combat planes that were no longer in use by the Israel Air Force. These were substantially upgraded and put to use by South Africa's Air Force and renamed the Atlas Cheetah. The deal was worth $1.7 billion, an unprecedented sum. But international pressure on South Africa to end apartheid soon um, spread to Israel too. In the late 80s, Israel was forced to stop selling arms to South Africa. That was after the United States threatened to cut off its support for Israel. But the movement for a free South Africa did not forget Israel's role in supporting apartheid. In 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from prison after 27 years. Four years later, he won South Africa's presidency in the first free and open elections in the country's history. But he refused to visit Israel until 1999, when he said this. I have come here in order to pay my respects uh, to the government and the people of Israel. Many people have questioned why I should come here because uh, Israel worked very closely with the apartheid regime. But I say to them, I have spoken and made peace with uh, some of the men who slaughtered our people like animals. We worked with them and were able to bring about a peaceful transformation in our country. And I say Israel cooperated with apartheid, but they did not get involved in the atrocities of the apartheid regime. The new South African government has maintained relations with Israel, but at times they've been distinctly frosty. In May 2018, South Africa withdrew its ambassador from Israel over the killing of more than 200 Palestinians by the IDF during the Great March of Return. But some Afrikaner, white South Africans, perhaps unhappy with South Africa's new freedoms, retain an affection for Israel. In 2021, Haaretz reported this. Some Afrikaners who tend to be strict Protestants have been converting to Judaism and moving to Israel and especially to West Bank settlements. The article reports this. Among the first Afrikaner converts to make Aliyah were the Talyards from Ranfontein, a gold mining city near Johannesburg. They came in the mid-1990s and began raising sheep in the settlement of Susia, where they were often involved in violent clashes with Palestinians from nearby villages in the South Hebron Hills. Jacob, the eldest of 14 children in the family, was killed in a tractor accident several years ago. He once famously told an Israeli television reporter that he loved the apartheid system and thought it was the best thing in the world. Now, we've come across another Talyard, the name of the family in that Haaretz quote. He is currently um, fighting in the IDF. Leroy Talyard, who is clearly South African, posted this on Instagram in November. Israel is an apartheid state. This read this post that said that South Africa is about to pull out all of its diplomats out of Israel. And the caption of the post reads, South Africans know what an apartheid looks like. Now, we forget to mention some things when, when, we, when we say these things such as there are 2 million Arab Israelis living in Israel, which are allowed to be Muslim, Christian, any religion they want. There are about 200,000 Ethiopian Jews living in Israel that can practice any religion they want. These people, whether they be Arab, um, European, African, 
can become politicians, can become teachers, can become doctors. They can become the president of the country if they should choose to do so. If we're going to go according to this narrative, any country willing to defend its people and its borders is an apartheid state. Not every country is illegally occupying territory which isn't part of itself, right? So this idea every country would defend its borders, well, it's, Israel has illegally occupied the West Bank. I mean, some people would say for 75 years, other people would say for 56 years. Everyone should be able to agree that for 56 years um, they have been occupying um, the West Bank. So since um, the 1967 war, so decided, oh, they're just protecting their borders. No, Israel chose not to have normal borders because they wanted to expand their settlements and expand their territory. Um, ooh, there is bad luck for Leroy. Not only does he not seem to be the expert on human rights, he thinks he is, but um, he could be in trouble if he wants to return to South Africa because the country is planning to prosecute any of its citizens serving in the IDF. It says that South African citizens serving in the IDF may be, quote, contributing to the violation of international law and the commission of further international crimes. And it's exactly those international crimes that South Africa is charging Israel with in The Hague. So it's no accident that it's South Africa who were the first country to hold Israel to account for its genocidal acts in Gaza. I'm joined now by Dahlia Gabriel. Welcome onto Navarra Live this evening. Can I get your thoughts on, on you know, the history of, of South Africa and Israel and sort of the, the symbolism of it being South Africa who tomorrow will be taking Israel to the International Court of Justice? Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, the way that you've outlined the the comparison between South African and Israeli apartheid is is pretty comprehensive. And, you know, we we talk about how there is this immense investment, shared investment in the ability to successfully execute a racial logic, you know, demarcation of, of geography, the fact that, you know, it, miscegenation is illegal in Israel, like that doesn't exist unless you are trying to create a, sep a separation, a racial separation um, in, in your country. Uh, and in many ways, you know, there, there are obviously clear parallels between South African apartheid and apartheid. I would say that actually the difference is that there is something very specific about the Israeli project that is much more akin actually to US settler colonialism, whereby the end goal is actually that kind of genocidal ethnic cleansing removal of what they consider to be the insubordinate population. When you look at apartheid South Africa, the Africana settlers were not as invested in the actual elimination of black people, of black South Africans. They, they actually required black South Africans to continue to exist in the country because the black South Africans were the foundation of the economy. They were the people doing all the work. They were the people who were actually making the country run. What they wanted was total and utter subjugation in every form of life. Whereas with, with Israel, the project is more gearing towards particularly of Palestinians in Gaza of that elimination genocidal bent. Because yes, sure, you know, Palestinians in Gaza are used as cheap labor by Israel. But if the actual dream of, you know, is Israel having an ethno state from the river to the sea could be realized with the removal of the Palestinians, they would happily 
ethnically cleanse the, the Palestinians in Gaza and just replace that cheap labor force with labor from Asia, which is what they already do. And so that particular bent towards a genocidal project of elimination, I think, is is actually an undercurrent within the the Israeli project here that isn't as comparable in the South African project. And I think the fact that you have this allegiance between literal Nazi sympathizers and the foundation um, of the Israeli state shows that you don't have, shows that this was never about that when you see it at state level and at a level of power, this deep investment in the success of Israel is not about an investment in the actual safety of Jewish people. It's about the investment in the idea of normalizing and successfully executing a racial apartheid logic because if it can be successful in one territory, then the dream of it being successful in other territories can remain alive. Um, but when it comes to, you know, the, the 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 legal claim, look, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to pretend that I, you know, know what this is, what, how tomorrow is going to go, or what the implications are going to be. It does seem to me, though, that from the research that I've done, that the reason that the South Africans have such a a good case, such a strong case, and a case that is a cause for concern, not only for Israel, but for Israel's allies, the US, Britain, because if it is found that there is plausibility of genocide, because the actual ruling to, to say whether or not genocide has happened will take many years to actually come to fruition, but what can happen in the meantime is a sort of motion for plausibility, then that implicates all the people that have facilitated with weapons, with money, with political cover, and even with, with you know, personnel, the fact that this, that implicates all those people as well as the Israeli state. So the reason that the South African state has such a strong case is because they have so much ample evidence for the thing that is typically very difficult to prove when it comes to legislating that something is a genocide, which is intent. They don't just have, you know, the scale of violence, the scale of death, the scale of destruction, but they have statements, literal public statements from Israeli ministers, people in the government who have essentially said that the objective of this war is to remove the Palestinians from Gaza. Sometimes they talk about this as, you know, we need to force, we need to make life so inhospitable in Gaza. We need to evacuate people from Gaza, you know, have Smotrich sort of saying it incredibly explicitly that we need to evacuate Palestinians from Gaza. And then you have people like Netanyahu who maybe can't go quite that far, but will use it in euphemisms, saying things like, you know, the voluntary migration of Palestinians from to, to leave Gaza. So the fact that we have so much of this, these statements from Israeli officials that seem to underscore intent is why the South African case is so strong. And it just speaks to the level of impunity that Israel has enjoyed, that they have arguably accidentally created mountains and mountains of incriminating evidence against them, because in their mind, is the US was giving them the green light to go as they please. And as far as they were concerned, the US was the world. But what they've realized now is that the US is not the world. There are actually other entities that also have, as much as the US has tried to 
to to muffle these processes from or defang these pro processes from actually being able to happen or weaponize you know things like aid and all of these things in order to stop these kind of legal processes from being being um being instigated there are actually other countries and other states with different histories and different relationships to empire and apartheid and racism that will be having a different perspective and it is of course a deeply poetic justice that it is South Africa who have a living memory of defeating apartheid in the lifetime of people who currently are still alive, um, that they are the ones that will be standing up to the genocide that we are seeing today. And, you know, this is, of course, incredibly important because not only for, you know, first, first and foremost for the Palestinians who's, who, you know, prevent stopping this onslaught against them and stopping their the fact that they are there is essentially a project to eliminate them as Palestinians living in Palestine. The, that being curbed is the utmost priority. But also for all of us, you know, if this project of ethnic cleansing against the Palestinians being done in such an overt and public and, and well-documented way. If this is successful with no political or legal blowback, then none of us in this world are safe. None of us in this world are free. So first and foremost, this is really important for the Palestinians survival, but it is also important for all of our survival because the outcome of this is going to be the blueprint for the world that for the post-October 2023 world. We will, of course, be talking about this case more tomorrow and Friday. For now, though, um, as you know, it will be heard tomorrow in The Hague. 11 other countries support South Africa's case, including Malaysia, Turkey and Pakistan. Britain's Jeremy Corbyn will also be amongst the delegation appearing in the International Court of Justice. And leading the South African Council is John Dugard. He's former UN Special Rapporteur on the human rights in the occupied Palestinian territory. So he will presumably be very knowledgeable on this issue. Also supporting the case is Israeli MP Ofa Kasif, who colleagues tried to have ejected from the Knesset. So his colleagues tried to have him ejected from the Knesset, and that's his role as a parliament, of course. As a result, he told Owen Jones why he supports the case. It seems that uh, some crimes are or have been done there. Uh, and so that should be investigated. And uh, I, uh, my signature is to investigate. Uh, Israel, as part of the Convention Against Genocide, uh, is not above the law. It's not above the international law. It's, uh, and in that sense, should, uh, the government should be investigated. And this petition, by the way, and I will, if I have the time, I'll uh, elaborate on that uh, later. The petition, in my view, is not anti-Israeli. It's not against Israel. It is against the government of Israel. But because the government of Israel is the enemy of Israel, it is eventually for the interest of Israelis as well to sign this petition. Very brave man. Very rare among Israeli MPs to be supporting something like this. Let's go on to our final story. The post office horizon scandal has caught the imagination of the British public thanks to an ITV drama, and people are looking for justice. So far, that's included the boss of the post office between 2012 and 2019, handing back her CBE. Her decision came after over a million people signed a petition calling for her honour to be revoked. It was an insult which added to their injury. Three years on this list a moment depicted in the recent drama about the post office scandal. Paula Venels has got the CBE. Joking. 
services to the post office. Today, it was all very different for Paula Venels as she caved to mounting public pressure to hand back the honour. In a statement, she said, I have listened and I confirm that I return my CBE with immediate effect. I am truly sorry for the devastation caused to the sub-postmasters and their families, whose lives were torn apart by being wrongly accused and wrongly prosecuted as a result of the Horizon system. It must be a bug. It must be, it must be a computer. Lee Castleton's story was one of those featured in the drama series. He went bankrupt after being falsely accused of stealing £25,000. So what does he make of Paula Venel's decision? It kind of was a kick in the teeth back then. Now it's full circle, I suppose. And, and we've got to a point where now it's acceptable that the moral decision to hand it back is the right decision. I personally have spent many, many years not being listened to. And, and I'm thankful that people are listening now. And I think people really are listening. I think it, there's been a real step change. Lee Castleton, a very brave man, is certainly correct. There has been a real step change in the public's approach to the victims of the postmaster scandal. Um, but personally, for me, a CEO handing back her honour is far from real justice. This scandal ruined people's lives. Over 700 people were falsely convicted because of faults in a computer system. And four people tragically took their own lives. Now, those four are no longer around to be vindicated in the way Castleton and other postmasters belatedly are. They died with their employers maintaining they were guilty. Now, of course, Paula Venels handing back her CBE isn't all that's happening in response to this public outcry. Rishi Sunak has suggested that all falsely convicted postmasters could have their convictions immediately overturned. But this miscarriage of justice meant innocent people went to prison, right? And if people high up at the post office knowingly let that happen, well, perhaps they should get a taste of prison too, right? And I don't say that in the spirit of an eye for an eye, right? We, we have to punish these people because they've done, uh, you know, because they're evil and terrible. No, I say this because we want to dissuade bosses from doing this in the future. There are incentives at the moment which encourage people to cover up stuff such as this. We need to make sure the incentives are to not cover up things such as this. Now, the first phase of the cover-up in this case is summarised by Computer Weekly. Now, we don't quote Computer Weekly very often on this show, but they, in fact, played a key role, probably the key role, um, in breaking this whole story. They write, Almost immediately after the installation of Horizon at post office branches, there was an increase in the number of sub-postmasters experiencing accounting shortfalls that they could not explain. Many had never previously experienced such shortfalls. Under the paper-based system, they could track back and find the cause but not anymore. So I'm sure many of you will have watched the, the drama by now. That's what was so you know, painful for people. They were being told there was the discrepancy before. If they were told there was a discrepancy and they didn't think it was there, they could look at the paper record right, and see, oh, this is what's gone on. Now it was just computer says, no, computer says you've stolen £10,000. So you've stolen £10,000. right? That's why it was so, so damaging for, for people. Now let's read more of this Computer Weekly Piece. They say the post office was determined to keep a lid on the horizon problems. To do this, it instructed staff in its call centre, which was the first contact point for sub-postmasters having problems, to tell callers they were the only ones experiencing problems. It went further than this by using its legal teams and deep pockets to defend itself against accusations in court if necessary. It bragged about stopping sub-postmasters from jumping on the horizon bashing bandwagon when it silenced them. It also lied to journalists, politicians and anybody else who questioned the robustness of the Horizon system. Now, again, if you've watched the drama, I really recommend 
um, watching it. Um, I started it last night. This idea that the sub-postmasters who were sort of seeing these discrepancies, so they were being told, they, you know, £20,000 has gone missing, either they have to pay it back or they're going to go to court, right? The most distressing thing for them was that they were being told this was only happening to them. They were saying this must be a fault in the system because we didn't take this money and say, well, it can't be a fault in the system because you're the only person with this problem. Now, according to Computer Weekly, you know, it wasn't an accident that these people in the call center were telling them that. It wasn't that this person in the Horizon call center just hadn't happened to have spoken to anyone else who was having this problem. They had been instructed by the post office to tell people, to lie to people essentially, to say that they were the only people having this problem when they weren't. Many other people were having this problem, right? And this is the most shocking part. The post office used criminal and civil legal action to shut sub-postmasters up. If sub-postmasters continued to complain and make noise about the system, it would find ways to stop them because it didn't want the wider network of branch operators to find out. For example, if a sub-postmaster being blamed for an unexplained shortfall sought expert IT advice, the post office would often back down. In 2003, when the post office was suing a sub-postmaster who was blaming Horizon for shortfalls at her branch in Lancashire, a judge ordered it to appoint an expert IT witness. When the expert revealed problems with Horizon, the post office paid off the sub-postmaster and forced her to sign a non-disclosure agreement. At around the same time, the post office took Lee Castleton, a sub-postmaster in Bridlington, to court over an unexplained shortfall of £35,000. Castleton, who was one of the first seven victims interviewed by Computer Weekly, refused to pay the money, citing computer problems as the cause of the shortfall. The post office spent over £300,000 crushing Castleton in court, it bankrupted him and devastated his and his family's life. Again, if you watch the, the ITV drama, you'll see that you know the post office spent that £300,000 and then that got added to what Lee Castleton owed. So he went to court saying, I'm not going to pay back this £25,000 because I did not steal it. I did not take it. This is a computer error. He goes to court, defends himself because he doesn't have enough money to, to get a, a fancy lawyer. He loses the case because the judge believed the expert that was sort of put to him by the post office. And then he ends up with, with, with a debt of £335,000 because he has to pay the, the post office legal costs as well. And what this is saying is that they knew there were faults. They knew there were faults and they covered it up. If they thought that they were about to lose a case when it came to faults in the Horizon system, they'd end the case and pay off the person and get them to, to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Why a non-disclosure agreement could possibly be acceptable in this situation. I don't know. That's supposed to be for sort of commercial secrets. A non-disclosure agreement is so you don't go to another company and share all the information you've got from, from, from one company. It's not to keep errors a secret, or it shouldn't be. So as this shows, the cover-up began as early as 2003. And until 2009, the post office was successful in keeping those wrongly accused isolated and alone. That was key to their strategy. That all changed in 2009, though, when Computer Weekly published allegations about Horizon, and when Alan Bates, so he's the main protagonist in the ITV drama, founded the Justice for Sub-Postmasters Alliance. Now, crucially, this organization is what enabled wrongly accused postmasters to meet each other and get organized, right? So they knew that they weren't alone, they can now get organized, and they then um, went to MPs, and under pressure from MPs, the post office brought in external investigators. So you might think, oh, this is the happy ending. Um, this is when um, justice was done. But it wasn't. It didn't end there. Nick Wallace wrote the definitive book on the post office scandal. 
The post office in 2012 were persuaded by the Justice for Subpostmasters Alliance and uh, the then James Arbuthnot, now Lord Arbuthnot, who was an MP, Joe Hamilton's MP, uh, one of the subpostmasters who featured in the ITV drama, to get independent investigators into the post office to have a look at the Horizon IT system, this accounting system which uh, sits on the counter of every single post office in the country, and find out whether there was anything wrong with it. Now, Second Sight spent a year investigating inside the post office, and their conclusions in 2013 proved beyond all reasonable doubt that there were serious issues with the Horizon IT system and the post office's business processes and its prosecution function. Now, after that, everything went completely bonkers within the post office. We know, we've seen these internal documents now, which have been uh, coming out in the various court cases. They did everything they could to minimise and suppress the damage. They commissioned secret reports, which revealed to them that they had potentially falsely prosecuted dozens, if not hundreds, of innocent sub-postmasters. They chose to suppress that information and not give it to Parliament and not give it to the campaigners. That's the cover-up. While they were suppressing that information, they continued to pursue their case against the postmasters in the High Court. That was until 2019. Um, That was when um, they reached a £58 million settlement with 555 sub-postmasters. So they had to settle, obviously. Um, Much of the truth came out then. Um, However, most of the money awarded went on legal costs. Um, This is what one of the victims of the scandal said to the Times about then-CEO of the post office, Paula Venels. Instead of getting to the bottom of it and putting it right, she fought us in the high court. And if she had stopped it, my mum and dad would have seen me get my conviction quashed and we wouldn't have had more years of misery. All right, so if they hadn't tried to suppress this information, then she could have had you know, a decent life, uh, enjoyed the, the final years with her mum and, and dad. But instead, the post office wanted to drag this on and now those years are, are taken away from this woman for, forever. It's all completely horrific. There's one piece of evidence in particular, though, that I want to focus on now. It's the minutes from a meeting in August 2010 between senior staff at the post office and Fujitsu. So Fujitsu um, is the company who ran the Horizon IT system. Now, this is from the minutes of that meeting. As I said, it happened in 2010. There's employees of the post office and Fujitsu here, and they find discrepancies showing at the horizon counter disappear when the branch follows certain process steps, but will still show within the back end branch account. This is currently impacting circa 40 branches since migration onto Horizon Online, with an overall cash value of circa £20,000 loss. So in 2010, they're recognizing that this this system has significant errors, that you're seeing losses because of a malfunction in the system so that they knew there were these discrepancy errors right as far back as 2010 as i say however right you might hope that in a situation such as this they would say okay problems are happening we can see that uh this this means this could be really problematic this means that some of these cases we're taking against people um might be you know miscarriages of justice it might be that many of the people who called up and said oh this is an error in the system right there were many people who called up over and over and over again to Horizon to ask for help. Every day, some of them. They weren't trying to hide this. And Horizon told them, no, it must be you because no one else is having this problem. They knew that other people were having this problem. So you might think, finally, these guys are going to realize they need to take action. Well, this is what they considered to be the potential impacts of this finding about these discrepancies. Our accounting systems will be out of sync with what is recorded at the branch. So that's the second one. If widely known, 
could cause a loss of confidence in the horizon system by branches. Potential impact upon ongoing legal cases where branches are disputing the integrity of horizon data. It could provide branches ammunition to blame horizon for future discrepancies. Right, so the concern isn't the possibility of injustice being done. It's about the reputation and confidence in the horizon system. Right, so they found this serious problem. The worry they have isn't that this problem could be you know, creating miscarriage of justice, but rather we, we, could, we don't want people finding out about the problem. Right? What's worse, they are clearly worried that this finding could impact legal cases between postmasters and the post office. If only that was the case. Right? If only that was the case, then one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in British history could have been avoided. And that might have included Seema Misra. Now, she was an innocent postmaster who was sentenced to jail three months after the meeting whose minutes I've just shown you. 11th of November, 2010, I went in and never came back, never went back to my own house. From there, they took me to the hospital and then to the prison. I was in Bronzeville prison and I was there for just under four months. The news came when the trial was going on, I find out that I'm pregnant. So it was like a happy moment. We couldn't enjoy it as a family either because the case was going on and everything. So it was just like mixed feeling, but now, if I would have been pregnant, I would have killed myself. Probably that's why God saved that special occasion for that time. He knew that. I was sentenced for 15 months. So I came out on tag on 7th of March. I went in the labor with my tag on. Even the happy moments in my life got that post office tag on. Such heartbreaking testimony, right? And, you know, when I first read about that story, you know, about the case of this woman, you say, oh, my God, she was sent to prison when she was pregnant, right, for this crime she didn't commit. Then you listen to that and she says, thank God I was pregnant because otherwise I might have killed myself. Now, as I've said before, four people did, right? So maybe she is lucky that she was pregnant at that period of time, right? It's just, just absolutely horrific. And that happened after the meeting where they were discussing all of these errors. Now, when I was reading about that set of minutes from the 2010 meeting between the post office and Fujitsu, I immediately thought of another great British injustice, Grenfell. Why? Because that grave injustice was also preceded by corporations recognizing there was a problem which could endanger lives and livelihoods, and then deciding the real risk was to their corporate reputations. Now, this is a passage from the New Statesman describing emails revealed at the Grenfell inquiry. They relate to a firm called Arconic, which provided some of the flammable cladding responsible for the Grenfell fire. So, the inquiry also heard how Arconic was aware of the product's true properties long before the Grenfell Tower fire. After a 2009 panel fire involving polyethylene in Romania, Well sent the firm's president, Claude Schmidt, photos of the blaze. Here are some pictures to show you how dangerous polyethylene can be when it comes to architecture. A year later, Whirl emailed other colleagues warning of Rainabon's polyethylene's shortfall in relation to standards for high-rise buildings as, quote, something that we have to keep very confidential. The sales director, Guy Schneidecker, replied, this shouldn't even have been mentioned. Right, so you're recognizing there's a serious life-threatening problem. This shouldn't have been mentioned. Make sure you keep this confidential. They're not worried about the danger to people in those buildings. They're worried about the danger to their reputation. They've decided that the safest thing to do for them 
is to cover it up. Obviously, the safest thing to do for people living in those buildings would have been to immediately come clean on the fact that you've put very, very dangerous cladding on a bunch of these buildings. Obviously, the result was completely tragic, was the deaths at Grenfell. Um, a bit more from this New Statesman article. In 2013, Deborah French, Arconic's UK sales representative, circulated an email from an aluminium cladding representative that stated, using PE, so polyethylene, is like a chimney which transports the fire in the shortest times. Referring to a live test of this type of cladding system in Bangkok, Thailand, it described how the architects present almost fainted and called the panel a whole cheat that burns fiercely Fire regulations were deemed a touchy subject in internal Arconic emails that year. All right, so please don't bring up fire regulations. Now, what should happen in an organization? What should have happened in the post office, right? You've got all of these people um, who are being accused of, 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 of stealing money. They all blame the Horizon system. You know, there weren't this many people stealing money before the Horizon system came into being, right? Now, suddenly, all of these very upstanding citizens are being told that they're liars, they're criminals, they're getting sent to prison. Then you have an understanding within the company, oh, that there are problems with the Horizon system. Now, what should a company do in that situation? They say, oh God, there are problems with the Horizon system. We better come clean instantly so that we don't have miscarriages of justice. Maybe some of the people who've been sent to prison are innocent. Oh, oh my God. Um, yes, this is very embarrassing for the post office, but we must do the right thing because the worst thing to do would be to leave people languishing in jail um, when they haven't committed the crime they've, they've been accused of, right? That's what they should have done. Instead, they said, oh, we've got to suppress this information because that would be embarrassing. What did these firms who were selling cladding to buildings do? They've discovered, to be honest, they, they kind of knew the whole time that this stuff was incredibly flammable, right? New information emerges, so they're seeing the same material going up in flames on high rises elsewhere in the world. What should they have done at that point? They should have said, oh my God, this is very dangerous. Um, the most important thing here is for us to you know, tell the authorities, for us to update people so everyone can remain safe. What do they do? Say, well, the real problem here is that this would be embarrassing for us if people found out as I say, and in a tragedy where 72 people died, right? Dahlia, this is why I sort of introduced this segment by talking about the need for some of these people to go to prison. I, I, don't, I, know, I, I don't know enough detail about this to tell you who should and who shouldn't. But it seems to me that what we see is there's this sort of systematic incentive structure where people high up in corporations, they have a decision. Do we come clean? Um, and, you know, in the case of the post office, stop people going to jail. In the case of um, Grenfell, stop people dying. Or do we cover this up and hope for the best, hope that no one ever finds out? And I think the reason some people need to go to prison is because we need to change the incentive structure. People need to think, well, the worst thing we could possibly do is cover it up because then we might go to jail, right? Then we might go to jail. And I also think in the case of this post office one, you know, if people are done for stuff, it will be for, you know, it's, I mean, perverting the course of justice, maybe. But I mean, you, you've almost kidnapped people, right? <laughs> because the decisions you have made have, have withdrawn this person from their life for years, right? You, you've kind of held someone hostage by, by not revealing the information you have. I mean, what do you think about this? There's just so much in this story. There's the problem of the intensely hierarchical and corrupt ways in which so many corporate workplaces are, are run and even workplaces that are supposed to be public sector but are actually run according to a corporate logic that environment essentially incentivizes cover-ups, as you say. Um, you also have the issue of, you know, workplace organization. You have this also this underlying kind of current of also automation and the relationship between workers and automation and et cetera. Because one thing that this actually, you know, you raised Grenfell. Another 
instance that this actually also reminded me of was Lucy Letby. Now, obviously, it's kind of a very different scenario because in the Lucy Letby case, you did have a worker who was in the wrong and was not facing accountability for what she was doing. But the same logic of having this extremely hierarchical and competitive structure where you have someone in the top who can hold immense amounts of power to stifle dissent or to stifle whistleblowing and has the power to cover up despite so many people ringing the alarm and so much of the evidence countering against what they're saying, and also who are in this environment where nothing matters more than their corporate reputation and the reputation of the decisions that they've made, those two things together create an incredibly toxic environment. And to me, the real way that we prevent this from happening again is not so much trying to shape or change the behavior of those individuals that get to the top, but rather to actually create an environment where no single person or no small group of people actually even have that power to begin with to stifle dissent in that way and to 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 essentially prevent workers from being able to even communicate with one another it's not lost on me that this the ball started to get rolling on the whole question of actually settling what had happened not only when there was this investigation by computer weekly but when one of the victims of this scandal set up an organization where workers could come into contact with one another and break through the gaslighting that the company had done to essentially tell workers well you're the only one with this problem and in my head I'm thinking if they all were unionized then maybe this process of them being being in contact with one another would have happened much earlier and so I think it's about really revisiting the kind of power structures that exist in so many of our workplaces but there's also this other thread that kind of runs through the story which is what happens when automation takes place in work? Um, because at the end of the day, what happened here was that you had kind of paper or manual process ways of processing paperwork. And the idea, you know, what this manager wanted to do was essentially to introduce this computerized system that would make everything cheaper, that would make everything more efficient. And the testimony of the actual workers and the workers saying something's going wrong here was puncturing a hole in that fantasy that that manager was having of this of this one-stop shop quick techno fix to you know the the issue of labor and the issue of time and whatever that was happening using the manual processing systems and it's a perfect example of how, you know, I'm not against obviously the use of technology in the workplace or the introduction of automating technologies in the workplace. When they are introduced in a way that is very specific and strategic and in collaboration with workers and their needs, and in a way that is, you know, a slow process that is actually responsive and listens to workers who are having direct experience with this process of automation. But instead, what we see is automation being introduced as a way to actually undermine workers and a way to actually tell workers, you're not really necessary. Your expertise is irrelevant when it comes, you know, we're always going to believe the machine over you or we're always going to, if, if you kind of try and throttle the seamless introduction of our fantasy of what an automated system can do, which is to make everything cheaper, quicker, more accurate, more efficient, which 
doesn't really happen that way a lot of the time, then we're simply going to eliminate the worker or we're simply going to criminalize, in some cases, the worker rather than give up on our fantasy that automation is the quick fix to any kind of productivity issues in the workplace. So you kind of it's kind of so many issues of modern politics of work in its in its peak, you know, the, the intense hierarchy, lack of worker organization, um, corporate reputation literally above all else, and also the blunt tools with which automation and technology are being introduced in the workplace to undermine human workers rather than to enable them. One of the things that sort of the drama sort of made clear to me is the danger of, you know, technology being uh, in control of so much of our lives and it being a complete black box to so many people. So you have sort of these scenes where an IT expert is sort of speaking in court and, you know, someone is representing themselves and the judge is just like, clearly has no idea, you know, understandably, right? A, a judge doesn't know what the hell any of these people are talking about. So it becomes he said, she said. Well, he's saying that the computer system can't have made a, con- uh, uh, a mistake. This person's saying the computer system has made a mistake. This guy seems more believable, I suppose, so I'll go with him. You know, it ends up just a sort of guesswork. Um, thank you, Dahlia, for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. It's good to have you back. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow. Um, for now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support.